Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca, and I'm the digital producer. To all of those who observe, happy Independence Day! In the spirit of independence, or maybe just because we couldn't resist the pun, this week's episode takes a look at directors who've made small, inexpensive films, sometimes wearing multiple hats out of necessity rather than vanity. And if you're mildly allergic to the word indie, never fear. There's none of the usual hagiography about Mavericks or any of the usual suspects mentioned. I was joined by Nellie Killian, senior programmer at BAM Cinematheque. Gina Tellaroli, um, filmmaker, critic, and video archivist. And Nick Rapold, editor of Film Comment. Here's our conversation. So today, it's America's birthday. And we're going to be talking about what makes America great. You know, chocolate bars, blue jeans, independent cinema. So we're going to be going around and talking about the past of independent production and then also the present and just to get a holistic view and consider independent film not as like, oh, you're really sassy and you're really saying something, but literally people who made films with independent financing, not inside Hollywood, really writing grants, pounding the pavement, finding people who believed in their vision, working, washing dishes, whatever they did to get the money. So, Nellie, would you like to kick us off with your historical independent filmmaker? Sure. Well, I think in the prompt you said, you mentioned something about uh, filmmakers who took on multiple roles Mm -hmm. um, in the production as sort of a hallmark of independent filmmaking, which I thought was interesting. It seems like an economic necessity sometimes or... uh, maybe something that's attractive now, that if Mm -hmm. you are going to have such a hard time making a film, you want it really to be yours, writing, directing. But I was thinking back on the Black Women's Independent Cinema Series we did at BAM in February and the collaborative nature of so many of the films that many of the women who we were showcasing as directors were popping up in the credits of everything as, you know, Deborah Robinson, who directed Ivy Dunn Benoises, was the cinematographer in a host of movies, um, et cetera, et cetera. And one filmmaker who really um, popped out as someone who wasn't just working on a number of films, but actually had her own venue where she was showing them was Jessie Maple, mm-hmm. who made two independent features and a number of documentaries in the 70s and 80s, Will and Twice as Nice, both of which are these sort of excellent community Films, portraits of her neighborhood and um, people she knew, people that she was familiar with, um, problems in the community, that they're fully formed pictures of community. She was not just a filmmaker and not just a woman who, uh, with her husband, was running this sort of micro cinema, which I believe the um, tagline was uh, giving people a choice. Mm -hmm. She also operated two restaurants in Harlem. She was the first woman camera operator in the union. Mm-hmm. She was an editor who worked on a number of Gordon Parks films. And I guess I liked the idea of talking about her and being able to talk about that sort of like larger community that allows independent filmmaking to happen, that because there 
aren't the means to really do it another way. You really have to have this network of people. I mean, it's a, I, how would you characterize her work versus something like the L.A. Rebellion School? Because obviously people like Julie Dash, um, Charles Burnett, their films, this is all within degrees of like familiarity because mm -hmm. obviously these are independent people. They don't have like PR machines. Their films are just sort of like discovered, rediscovered, whatever you want to call it, and then restored or given a run at a, you know, a really nice, well, Jesse Maple's film played here as part of the Black yeah. Independent series here. So how would you characterize her style versus more quote unquote well-known Black independent filmmakers? I mean, there's social dramas, which I think a lot of the movies you're referencing are as well. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to say it in contrast. I mean, Gina's familiar with the films yeah. as well. I mean, I think there, one thing that stands out about Jesse's work a little bit is they're really funny. They're having, you're having, yeah. like they're these social movies but they're funny and they don't have Hollywood conventions per se, but there are gags. There are these things I think that lighten them up a little bit and really give them kind of more of a heart. I don't know that that's super cheesy to say. I think twice as nice, especially yeah. um, has like a lot of really funny moments. It mm -hmm. has these two uh, twin sisters who actually were basketball stars and it's sort of a, I guess somewhat autobiographical, but like very different as well. Like, tale of two sisters who go to play college basketball and the girls are just really funny as are so many of the other girls on the team and it becomes this kind of like you know teen sports film yeah. that has a a lot of levity while also dealing with like the actual challenges that they're facing but there's like you yeah. know there's this one scene where the the one girl is going to be interviewed she's going to be drafted or something there's a big event and there's all these like media people in a living room oh, yes and there's this there's this sound guy who just keeps eating the sandwiches or keeps eating the snacks. And it's like totally go, the scene goes on too long and he just keeps going back for the sandwich and like walk this big white guy walking around. And it's just really funny. And in Will, too, there's like the scene where I think someone's like unwrapping a lunch while they're sitting outside and it goes on way too long. And it's really, really funny. And it's also, you know... I mean, I think a lot of that comes from she didn't want to present like the community she lived in in just one way. You know, right. she had a very panoramic vision of people's lives. But the sandwich guy in <laughs> Twice is Nice, I remember asking her about it in the Q&A after the film. And she was like, oh, yeah, that was like the sound guy. That was our sound guy. <laughs> um, and he was just eating the sandwiches and just kept on eating them. And then we just kept it in the movie. And like, I was like, perfect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You got to, you know, another thing about independent filmmaking you have to like be able to seize on those perfect moments that arise yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah well Gina what was your historical pick it's quite quite a difference in some ways from Jesse Maple but I um I love Hugo Haas and I kind of have been realizing over the years that not a lot of people know much about him mm -hmm. he um comes from the Czech Republic and he made he was a pretty successful director there he made this one movie I think it's called Skeleton on Horseback it plays at MoMA every now and then when there's something Czech <laughs> related that comes up and then he was kind of forced to come over here he was I believe Jewish and he started out being a character actor finally finally made his way into Hollywood he's a he's a big portly man he has an accent um, and he's he's in a ton of movies you'll, you'll see him in the background I think my favorite of his acting performances in, is in Henry King's Bells of Adano if you want to check that out but he then you know around 1950 1951 you know, he missed directing, I guess, and he started to use the money he'd gained from acting to make independently his own movies that he would write, direct, often star in and produce. And he was able to make, I think, 14 features that way. And basically what he did was he kind of 
would always cast like a busty blonde in the movie. Cleo Moore or Beverly Michaels, I think, are the his go-tos. The movies would, you know, Columbia and I think Fox put a lot of them out and they would always make enough money back so that he can make another movie, mm-hmm. which I kind of love as this sustainable system of movie making. And they're really weird. They're really funny. He, they're always a little bit political, but they're always fun. I don't know, like Beverly Michaels' performance and pick up his first feature is just one of the best things I think that I've ever seen. But um, his last movie, which he made in 1959, I think, but no studio wanted to put it out. So I think it kind of got out into the world somehow in 1962 is kind of, I think, the perfect thing to talk about, I guess, in the context of independent cinema. In it, Hugo Haas plays like a kind of fallen out of grace German. I think he's supposed to be German, but maybe he's just supposed to be like the silent German directors. And he, for whatever reason, moves into kind of like a housing project slum type thing. And all the people who are old, many are old silent actors. Chester Conklin's in the movie. Marie Windsor is in the movie. Um, Billy Gilbert's in the movie. Margaret Hamilton is in the movie. And they're all in this kind of housing project slum. And they're all fighting all the time. And he's all like, oh, but why are you fighting all the time? And he kind of sets about to get all of these people to kind of come together by deciding that they should make a movie together. And there's someone else that Chester Conklin plays... Uh, an old camera operator that worked with D.W. Griffith. And he has like a camera in his his apartment. So they start out to make this film, although they don't have any actual film stock. They just have the film camera. So they don't tell the people that this movie they're making is not actually being recorded. <laughs> and then it's on YouTube, but the ending is cut off. So I will tell you what the ending is. But um, This is a reverse <laughs> of a spoiler. I know. <laughs> but basically somehow the studio's get wind of this and there actually is a studio head at the end that gives this talk about the kind of movies that we need to see like we really need these movies with heart that are not cost tons of money but it's a really beautiful strange little movie and it's kind of a it's kind of a really amazing note to end this kind of unique I think independent career that happened really inside the studio system and it's fringes but still, yeah yeah how would you characterize him from other let's say poverty row filmmakers well, i think of that it time? really is him it's his wearing the multiple hats that kind of sets it apart because yeah. the movies he wasn't just being given scripts like i've been watching a lot of republic films lately which is like the king of poverty row right. and there's obviously similarities especially when in the true color process but the scripts are all a little bit different there's always variation and with Hugo Haas's movies, you really feel like this same strange energy pulsing throughout them. And he also stars in most of the movies, and he right. is not your leading man. He's not even like a level C leading man, you know. <laughs> he's not a Rod Cameron. He's like a large foreign man. <laughs> and he's often playing romantic strains, these weird romantic interests. The movies mm-hmm. are a little bit perverse. They're all political, kind of overtly or in, uh, in hidden, weird, undertoned kind of ways. Um, and you just really get the sense, I think, of an auteur even before that term, I think, came to be in a really different sense. And they're really, I think the thing about these movies too for me is they're really good. Like, yeah. they're not just silly. Like, there is this really strong voice and presence that ties them all together. And they're, but they're fun. There is a big busty blonde woman in them. Like, I feel like the Again, audience commercially is... commercially minded. Yes. Yeah, the audience <laughs> has got their money's worth or what have you. It was a really sustainable kind of transparent system that was happening. Yeah. What a beautiful thing movies are. <laughs> Nick, do you want to say oh, what yours was? Well, actually, I want to tell my theory about Okja. 
that might not seem relevant. The, the reason why it's it relevant... It really isn't, but go ahead. No, I'll tell you why. Because you mentioned that the, the movie you were talking about was uh, has an ending that ends with a studio head saying something. And I think it's interesting that sometimes in these independent films, they kind of incorporate a plot that has to do with, you know, like um, appropriation or, or like someone stepping in. Commodification often seems to be part of the story in some way. So that made me think of Okja because I have a pet theory about Okja that... Partly an allegory about Bong Joon Ho being a filmmaker who is exported with a cinema he developed at home, just like the super pig in that film is cultivated on 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 you know Korean soil, but then is you know forcibly taken elsewhere. So that's my little Okja. And he Allegor- was also and he allegory. was also tortured by Jake Gyllenhaal. He, in a, yes, that's in true. Paramus. Little known about Bong, Bong Joon-ho was anyway, so uh, anyway. Um, <laughs> now you're going to talk I'm about Frederick got, Wiseman, right? I'm glad I got that out of my system. <laughs> oh, you spoiled it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I at any given opportunity, of course, I will talk about Frederick Wiseman, and this happens to be one of them because if we're talking about independent filmmakers, I feel like he's just uh, a, like a breed apart. Just kind of uh, if, if you think of him in those terms, it's just. His, his project and what he's accomplished um, as, as a completely independent voice for that long, you know, going on like half a century, is I, I, I have trouble thinking of anyone like that who has sustained it. And he didn't, have, didn't like take off five years at some point um, and now is making them more frequently than ever. Yeah, I mean, Wiseman, I mean, if I had to pick a film, you could just start with the first one, Titicut Follies. Also a film that probably wouldn't be easy for someone to necessarily get funding to make. You know, at the time in the 60s when Titicut Follies came out, I felt like Cinema Verite was kind of leaning towards celebrity-driven, you know, profiles or event-driven things or... uh, Well, they were showing on TV, right? So if you think of something like Primary... That was made for television. Right. And it was yeah. following a form of celebrity, a politician, John F. Kennedy. Right. Absolutely. And and because it was for TV and kind of came out of a new ma- news magazine format, it's kind of limited in what it can do. And making a movie about a, an asylum with, you know, just terrible things being done to the patients there is not really the top of list for, you know, D.A. Pennebaker probably at the time um maybe more served for the Maisels. He, he was doing some other stuff but so independence there meant you know making a movie his own way about a really challenging subject that he wanted to you know shed light upon he always says that when when he produced the cool world for shirley clark he said i saw that and i thought i could do that <laughs> but it just that's also i guess part of the independent ethos is that you say you know i wanted to make movies and i i, I could try and he did that and part of it's the filmmaking for him in terms of what's independent, just sticking to the style or developing a style. His style does develop, but that, you know, he, ha- he hasn't really bent to the fashions of the times over, over the decades. He sort of kept on plowing his own path. And on the production distribution end, he also has his own distribution company. So that's, that's another thing. I mean, financially, obviously, he's not independent. I mean, I don't know what that would mean unless someone... Who, who's like a financially independent filmmaker who completely funds well, I, I mean, I think, on, on that scale. You yeah. Know? With yeah. Wiseman, what always gets me is people will be like, oh, those, I can't see that movie. It's not available. And I'm like, no, it's available for purchase on a website. Right. <laughs> you yeah. have to buy it, though. That's, But it's right. available. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. And he was very protective about that for a long time. And it took a while for them to come out on DVD because he didn't want 
to you know sign up for the deals with Netflix or whatever. He always says they wouldn't give me enough money. You know, as a documentary film, I like to make documentary films, but I also like to eat. And he just stuck to his guns on that. And probably maybe more people would have seen them. But uh, at the same time, he yeah stuck to completely controlling his revenue stream, which is not a not a minor thing. But yeah, his films did show on like PBS. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, roughly contemporaneous to, you know, when they were released shot. But like, you know, I remember in undergrad seeing high school and just being like so transfixed by me like oh my god this is amazing i want to buy this on dvd and then going to his site and it's over six hundred dollars because it's like institutional copies only but now that's changed now you can go get however many dvds stocking stuffers for your family and give them titicut follies for christmas near death a great (laughs) it will stuff the stocking that that one that's barely even fits in like in the casing (laughs) but it's funny about the institutional aspect that's another thing that's just kind of ironic about it is that here you have a guy who's you know chose to do his own thing and what has he done for his entire history but like chronicle big gray institutions you know it's not like he was following you know singers or something you know he chose to do hard stuff that's not commercially appealing always real quick i had maybe the best thing happen at a movie that could happen i was uh, i saw welfare at film forums wiseman retro recently and the film starts and but then i guess the 16 millimeter print was kind of beat up so they had to stop for a minute and the woman sitting two seats over in a pretty much empty theater turns to me and goes i'm in this (laughs) 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 and it was so exciting and she was in it which was she one of the welfare workers yeah she's one of the welfare workers and she talks to this guy and she explained the whole scene to me which would be towards the end of the movie and this guy had just gotten out of jail and he reveals that he had killed someone and then i think she said she was very happy that the camera was not on her face when when he said that but then she also goes out of her way to help him and she said that's why she thought wiseman because she didn't do the normal protocol which is why she thought wiseman probably chose to include her in the film oh But it was kind of, I mean, that was like the best thing. (laughs) I'm going to talk about somebody completely different. John Jost, who was, he grew up as like a military brat and he briefly dated Shulamith Firestone's sister uh, to give you a sense of his politics. And, you know, he was in prison for uh, refusing to go to Vietnam. He was in Chicago in 68 and he was at the Democratic Convention and, you know, shooting this footage with us, you know, it's part of this collective. And then, you know, he had this epiphany. Maybe he doesn't say this anymore. I'm just going from interviews around the time. But he said, you know, he felt like the left was sort of becoming a form of its own fascism. And if the crowd was all chanting together and if they had changed the slogan just slightly to something, you know, fascist, they would have gone along with it. So he sort of he moved to Oregon and then later on Montana. And he's, you know, he is very concerned with a sense of the rural and the remote and parochial and it's totally fascinating um and i don't think that there are probably his films vary so much but i would like to read this amazing quote by jonathan rosebaum he wrote about mr jost in the jan feb 82 issue with reds on the cover which is like you want to call yourself a real socialist you got to get this issue quote in a manner that seems exasperatingly and inescapably american that alternately warms and chills my blood, John Jost embodies the dangers, limitations, and intransigent strengths of isolation more graphically than any other contemporary independent I know, with an authenticity that often leaves a disturbing aftertaste, end quote. So that's, uh, that's Johnny in a nutshell. I saw, and his, it's crazy because it's like, his films are just so consistently 
fascinating and i was going to i'm going to just talk about last chance for a slow dance which was released in 1977 which was the same year he also shot and released angel city which is completely different from it's like it's like um it's kind of amazing for a filmmaker to do two films in one year and these are both so different from each other which makes them even i think even more special last chance is just sort of a very naturalistic tale of this guy who is you know he has a wife and they've had two accident children and now a third accident is on the way and uh he just goes off in his truck supposedly looking for a job because he can't find a job you never see him actually looking for a job he just sort of goes around bird dogging chicks and it's just incredible it sounds like all of these cliches right it sounds like a norman mailer film or something uh, you know or this brute male masculinity but it's completely subverting that and questioning that and again this is all shot in montana and so they're just like these amazing the way he portrays these conflicts between this guy and basically the rest of the world is just so empathetic but then also in a way you know it's not it's not flattering it's not saying that this guy should be doing what he does and um he uh, fun fact john jost also wrote and sang a lot of the country music that's in the film so eat it Clint Eastwood and hopefully Nick Pinkerton won't step on my neck the next time I see him for saying that but I think he's another one that's hard to see yeah. the work unless you make a point to go when they screen right he also sells all of his films on his website yeah. and Angel City which is like this weird detective tale of like a starlet who is murdered who is going to star in this Hollywood remake of Triumph of the Will it's it, again it's completely formally different from Last Chance for a Slow Dance. He starts the film off by this crazy shot where he's like pointing his camera down at a mirror and he says how much the film cost and he thanks a few people for giving him money to make the film, which is just like this, I, I feel like he's always very consistently being like, what is filmmaking in every regard? Like speaking directly, another one of his, that was his first feature which is like an experimental documentary. He's interrogating himself as like a person and then also as the filmmaker. And uh, if Johnny doesn't roll through your town, go buy one of his DVDs because these are really, I would also add that he's still making films now and they're still just completely beautiful and unique. It's interesting who just kind of falls off from attrition after a number of years like that. Yeah, because it is what we're talking about here all kind of reflects the way that the way independent film has changed. He has a very great blog if you want to get again, get a sense of like his uh, personality. He ran a comparison. He, he And again, this is all he just did this himself. A comparison of the budgets of the films that were at the Independent Spirit Awards in 1990 when he was there versus 2012, which was the year that he did this study. And, it, you know, the budgets were like a couple thousand dollars and in 1990. And then in 2012, it's like several million dollars. And, and and that's not, you can talk about adjusting for inflation, but that's nowhere near the same. So, and, the, you know, they all have stars in them. They're just like a fundamentally different thing. So, I mean, it's difficult to hack it long term making yeah. these type of films. The time commitment, having people who have the time to work on them with you mm -hmm. that also don't need to necessarily be paid. Right. I mean, if you have kids or a mortgage, it suddenly becomes maybe impossible. Yeah. It ain't or happening. a full-time job. Right, right. Because, yeah. yeah. Well, I do feel like a lot of people I know that make movies, there's a, a group of us, and we all have full-time jobs mm -hmm. and make movies in our own time. 
and like have found ways to kind of make that possible or have found jobs that are connected to the filmmaking or give you a certain amount of time. I mean, you guys just played Hermie and Helena and Matthias is a teacher and mm-hmm. that movie did really well, you know? So I think it's, it's becoming more of a facet if you don't necessarily want to make a certain kind of independent film or a certain kind of commercially putting star. I guess it's really kind of what it comes down to putting stars in your films to a certain extent. Yeah. If you don't want to do that and you're not rich, which I guess is maybe a lot of people who make movies, <laughs> them. Um, then you kind of have to have a job. And you have to find a way to make that work. Also, you make fewer movies. I mean, there right. are a number of these people, like when they were younger, when there were grants available for mm-hmm. artists, when it was cheaper to live in cities that had a lot of people that you could work with, collaborators, then you could maybe be making like a movie every year. Right. But once you're working in this method that is, you know, compatible with supporting yourself, um, you're not going to be able to do that necessarily yeah no i mean i mean i think about like dan sleet or ted fent Mm -hmm. like these are people who make movies that play in tons of festivals do really well but you know dan i know works at a job and saves money and so does ted to like fund their own films we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be right back now you can stream critically acclaimed films and cult favorites from the world's greatest film libraries with filmstruck Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection. Filmstruck brings you a bounty of independent and foreign titles, updated weekly, plus original bonus material and expert commentary. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free 14-day trial today at filmstruck.com. Well, I think that might be a good point to transition towards the present and people who we feel are making great, unique films independently now yeah well we just wrapped up bam cinema fest so there was a number of filmmakers in town it's very difficult to to choose (laughs) but um which of your children do you love the most right (laughs) well stephen cohn is someone who we've shown two of his features now and um i think his movies are just they're really beautiful like like really humanist uh films often uh, mostly taking place in Chicago, where he lives. Mm-hmm. Talking again about sort of maybe something that separates independent films that might end up at the Spirit Awards from um, independent films that the ilk that we're talking about here. He works with incredible Chicago-based theater actors, primarily. I think this last film had a number of people from Steppenwolf. He makes these beautiful films, and again, they haven't, for whatever reason, they haven't shown at like a Sundance or a South by Southwest the places that really seem to be able to launch people into a different sort of strata of um, financing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but this latest one, Princess Sid, is uh, the story of like a young woman who there's sort of like limited backstory. She goes to live with her aunt in Chicago for the summer. And her aunt is this sort of intellectual who has it seems been maybe out of touch with her niece and um, is living in like the family's home and one thing that I think is really interesting in Stephen's work is that it has uh, sort of these elements that in someone else's hands like could be like a like an unlikely uh, friendship (laughs) uh, develops between like a intellectual somewhat religious author and her like kind of jockey niece but it almost I mean 
I think in part just the power of the performances that these two women come together in the house and though one of the first things that Sid, the niece, says is when prompted that she could read in the corner of the room is, oh, I'm not really a reader. There's this immediate connection between the two of them and an immediate um, sort of curiosity about the other and wanting to sort of connect that, you know, sort of transcends these differences in a way that's unremarked on. Like it's sort of the baseline ethos of the movie is that people ultimately can connect and that like these differences aren't really anything. And it ends up becoming like a sort of Sid becomes this presence in the house that sort of shakes up her aunt's life. Uh, I mean, I don't want to give too much away because hopefully it'll be out in theaters. I mean, I actually don't know how. Well, um, uh, Henry Gable's birthday party played. That played as well. And that was a... I mean, his movies are also like, you know, queer films that, I mean, another sort of interesting thing about the sort of commercial mechanisms of these things, for whatever reason, he said he hasn't been completely embraced by the queer film circuit, though his movies are queer films. Uh, They're about queer characters. That one was about a birthday, I haven't seen it in a while, a birthday party for a teenage boy and uh, in a sort of religious family where the boy is sort of grappling with coming out of the closet and it becomes it's like the adults are there the kids are there and it becomes this um again something that I think in a sort of Sundancey way could be like a sort of religious environment this boy coming out of the closet but it's sort of a non-issue the religion isn't necessarily um portrayed as being at odds with sexuality which to have that just be like a baseline assumption about the world I think is great yeah 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 no definitely yeah and especially I think you know his films I don't I don't even want to say the word I guess it is reflects like a regional sensibility where it's like you know you because yeah yeah I mean you know he's working with these Chicago-based actors he Mm -hmm. all of the movies have been set in the case of Princess Sid in Chicago I think in Henry Gamble it's like a Chicago suburb but like they're not New York movies, they're not L.A. movies, which right. uh, is something that, you know, we did a show several years ago at BAM of, like, independent filmmaking in the 80s, and everything was regional. It was, you know, there was, like, Minneapolis movies and um, Pittsburgh movies and uh, Florida movies, and I feel like that regional filmmaking, of course, people are still making movies everywhere, but you don't, I, I don't think there there aren't as many independent scenes, there aren't as many independent venues, there aren't... Mm-hmm. Um, so many things that support I think there's just so much more stuff too that it gets I think things are we don't know what we don't know we also don't know yeah you know I mean I don't think film festivals are pro I mean you would know more about this than me first but you know I I think at least the bigger film festivals aren't watching all their submissions and definitely not you know (laughs) that's not how film festivals are necessarily I think totally programmed or someone like eight you know there's like there's someone watches it but Right. Yeah, because someone broke down like the amount of submissions yeah. Sundance gets, and then how much time it would take the programmers to actually watch them. So they do have pre-screeners and things like that. Yeah, yeah I mean, we don't have the bandwidth to do well, yeah, a exactly. submissions it's process. Um, I mean, maybe this is like a romantic notion, but mm-hmm. I mean, it seems that there used to be sort of independent weeklies, like critics in every town that could yeah. be championing things. There were venues that could be focused on independent films and be able to build an audience instead of just being like another Lamley mm-hmm. theater or whatever in every city, uh, which I do think that there is like an element of that that inhibits things bubbling up from a regional success to something that could be a little bit more on the radar of people. Yeah. 
Yeah. We did an episode talking about streaming versus theatrical, and there are venues in certain cities coming back now, but again, a lot of that bandwidth is taken up by things that have played elsewhere, not necessarily, you know, and if there there is like a showcase of things from that area or that hasn't played in New York or LA, it is maybe like one day or it's a festival. It's a very limited sort of a thing, so. Yeah, I mean, it's not perfect. It's getting better, not perfect. Which is, I mean, which is all to say it keeps us ignorant. Like, you know, not that it isn't happening, but that there isn't like the ecosystem that supports necessarily things. There's just a lot of things. Yes. Yeah. There's too many things. Yeah. (laughs) It was funny watching Paradise Alley again, and I was like, maybe like what independent cinema needs is for more people just to shoot without film. (laughs) (laughs) Well said. Just get it out of your system and then, you know, give yourself a moment. All the male guys that just want to do it to get girls can get the girls, but we just don't have to watch their movies. Or, yeah, or just uh, clone a peach pong where it's ethical, but boring and not good. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Well, it's actually very funny. I chose a Chicago filmmaker as well. I chose um, the one movie I really loved in 2016. I guess I should say first, I don't watch a lot of newer movies. I think I have a full-time job and... Older films are what kind of inspire my own work, so I kind of have to prioritize in an annoying way sometimes. But last year, something I really loved was Deborah Stratman's Illinois Parables. Mm -hmm. And what I really loved about it and what felt kind of unique in what's happening of what I see of independent cinema is, one, it played on film. So she shot on film, and because she did you know, a run at Anthology, she's able to screen a print, which felt really special and connected to what this work is, just in terms of it being a work of history, of landscape. So to have the actual print seemed really important. But also, I think so much ex- more experimental work or non-traditional narrative work is conceptual, like strictly conceptual these days. And I know as someone who makes... Um, experimental work, I always am kind of turned off by that. It's probably one of the reasons I don't go see. You, you need like a huge primer to maybe understand what the piece is. And I, I just kind of don't love that. Yeah. Paintings <laughs> that reference the entire history of art. Yeah. To- and this is a movie that there's thought, there's a concept, obviously, but it's also something that really feels like it was adaptable. Where she went and what she saw kind of changed the course of the movie. It really is about place and it really is about feeling and it's not just about executing an idea for me to see, regardless if that idea works in the medium of film. Mm-hmm. So I loved that about it. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that's not what I see sometimes, especially when I read, even when I just read descriptions, I'm like, oh, this is not necessarily going to be like that. And I just thought it was really beautiful. And yeah. I chose something because it's probably kind of an irritating thing to choose. Um, because <laughs> those are my faves. Yeah. Well, in, in some, no, in some ways it's totally, it, it could be a totally conventional idea of independent filmmaking now, but I, I still like it. Part of my preamble is that, uh, <laughs> can, we, can we take really guesses? like no. just build that anticipation? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think I just want to voice one unspoken premise for this is that the word independent, the word indie has been so debased in mm-hmm. what it, re- in what it means. It really is a, to a large extent a marketing term, which you never want to tell to a, a filmmaker or a director because when they say it, they, it means something. Yeah, not necessarily. Seem... Well, true. I mean, well, I guess a lot filmmakers, of filmmakers... Filmmakers, I feel like yeah. another thing that's been uh, touched on by not said is that a lot of times one of the hats that filmmakers have to wear now is marketer. That's true. And like... I know that people have been rejected from South by Southwest because their film didn't have enough Twitter followers, which yeah. is grotesque, but that's the world we live in. Is that true? That's yeah. true. What movie? <laughs> How many followers? 
<laughs> okay, why don't you just get... My movie is Good Time, directed by Josh and Benny Safdie, and starring Robert Pattinson. So that's why I know it's an irritating choice, because, you know, it is a movie that has a star who has made hundreds of millions of dollars for other people. Just in the most general sense, it's, I guess it's an independent film production. A24 is just distributing it. As far as I know, they weren't responsible for production of it. But it's interesting also kind of plugging into this past few years, the model of the actor as auteur or actor as producer auteur, kind of helping a movie get made or allowing it to be made and kind of curating their, their own career in, in a way that feels obviously has happened in the past, but feels distinct now because... Obviously, it's become only starker that you need a star to, to, to get some of these movies made. So someone like Isabelle Huppert can like do a Hyung Sang-soo movie or, or something. And Robert Pattinson can, when I interviewed him, he was really excited that he's going to be in the next movie from the director of Embrace of the Serpent. But he's going to have a very small role. But he was just really excited about that. Are they getting the young, muscular, the guy with the incredible thighs to be in that movie, too? From Embrace? Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I, I, I'll, I'll ask. Bob when so I see him usually... I mean Rob <laughs> whoops I just gave away that he's not a close personal friend <laughs> so yeah I guess so that that's how that one's interesting to me as a variation on independent film and one that is wrapped up with a 24 you know a very savvy canny marketer distributor um, that is positioning it a certain way knows exactly what they have on their hands so it's just interesting to see how that plays out and, I mean, there's all history to marketing independent films in a larger sphere like that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that the sort of, like, basis, baseline for independent would be just a movie that does not have distribution locked down mm-hmm. when yeah. it's completed. Yeah. <laughs> but if you're involved with, like, CAA or whatever and getting, like, Robert Pattinson to right. read your screenplay, I mean, it's it's interesting that mechanism just, like, comes later, but it's... Yeah. The timing's just different now. Yeah. No, it is. Yeah. Yeah. This is not their first movie. No, it's not their first movie yeah. and it's it, it's it's yeah, it is closer to independent as a genre, but in its filmmaking I do think it's pretty adventuresome in a way I would associate with independent filmmakers that you might expect you know me to talk about more. It's not a movie that necessarily needs help. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will it, say like one thing. I mean, I'm super excited to see Good Time, but I think you. what was great like when can release their competition lineup i remember just kind of being like oh and the tone of the movies seemed i've seen none of the movies mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but it just seemed like all these prestige things and i think what makes me excited about good time and like where the safties are headed is that they seem to be making movies that i'm sure have a plethora of emotions but are also fun they're not necessarily these heavy things that I don't even think Good Time can be sold as a prestige movie. Like, I don't think that's what no. the press is going to say. And I, it's not going to be hyped in that sense, I hope or think. And I, I don't know. That's I'm excited yeah. about that. I mean, it's kind of inconceivable to think of them like selling out or something. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, I would say as someone who has seen it and I start off being super suspicious of it and then something happened, which I will not say about halfway through the movie that made me laugh a lot. And after that, I was totally on board because I think the other thing, a big tendency in independent or semi-independent films that do get picked up is that they're kind of going after this genre thing, right? Like, so like Blue Room, that was a huge 
ish success. And that was very clearly like, we're going to riff on the idea of this type of movie. And it's kind of sick to death of that already. And that's what I thought Good Time was. And it's really not that at all. It's com- it's completely its own thing. Yeah, it just it just has like a as an, an energy and a velocity to it that the, just feels really headlong. And the in, soundtrack in a way that, is and, and and the soundtrack is it's a soundtrack where it would get a note, which would be just you just gotta turn this down. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's just it's 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 as it's as assaultive as the heaven knows what electronic soundtrack. Yeah. And so yeah, just those are those are things that are maybe independent hallmarks that kind of just unbridled energy and that that sense of excess, you know, and and the the actual sense of not really knowing what's going to come next, but not being aware that it's designed a certain way to, to make you feel that way. And then you get the little frisson that you're seeing this this kind of matinee star being put through these paces, put through the ringer, which is another perk. I mean, I have seen the stills and uh-huh. Robert Pattinson looks insane. Yeah. <laughs> I have not seen the film. Yeah. <laughs> And that thing doesn't always work out either. Like if you, when you have someone dressing down or. Yeah, that's always the worst thing when it's like the actor does prestige indie and it just sucks. And it's just like, oh, wow, you're like doing a guitar solo and nobody cares. (laughs) Nobody (laughs) gives a shit. Yeah, Um, yeah. Well, now I'll talk about my pick, which is Anna Biller's The Love Witch which was, uh, I believe it also played at Bamson of a Fest. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, she, and she's just somebody who I don't want to talk about the reception to this film because I feel like that's kind of, that's always going to be annoying if you dissect the reaction to this film. But I couldn't help but note it because I feel like a lot of people who were willing to dismiss it or annoyed by it or didn't get it thought of it as like this kooky genre pastiche and they were mad that it wasn't funny enough or something. And that's really not what the film is about. So the film is, it's about this woman who moves to this town who happens to be a witch. And- uh, I love how you say that confidentially. She happens to be a witch. And she um, she is uh, looking for the perfect man. And she seduces all these different men that she comes in contact with pretty indiscriminately. And she's let down by each one except for this last, this one last guy, I won't ex- spoil it, but Anna Biller is this, she used to be a visual artist and she makes all of her own costumes. She did all the paintings in the film. She even learned like left-handed calligraphy to write a letter that's used as a prop in the film. Like she's just very meticulously controlling every facet of this film. And the film looks, has the look of something from the 70s, mid-century, uh, maybe like an exploit, maybe looks like an exploitation film, but it's really not interested in the things that exploitation films are interested in because Anna Biller is a very, very clearly feminist. And I think her politics are very clear in this film. And like, if you go into it thinking that, oh my God, this is going to be like a funny riff on Radley Metzger, but not even like Radley Metzger, like Jess Franco or something, I don't know. I don't know any of these guys because I don't fucking watch them because those movies weren't made for women. <laughs> like, oh, gee, you're mad that I don't have this, like, references fucking, like, weird sexist movie from the 70s. Oh, my God. I really got to learn about movies, you guys. But it's not. Uh, that's exactly that. what I was going to say. Because so. <laughs> that's what it feels like talking to people about this stuff sometimes. Where it's like, oh, you didn't like the Duke of Burgundy because, you know, shut up. Shut up. I know what that stuff is and I don't like it. And Annabella doesn't like it either. And uh, yeah. Well, I'll say that I have insulated myself 
so much that I didn't even realize that that was the reaction of the love witch. Everyone I know loves it. Yeah, people who are yeah. stupid. <laughs> people who aren't online and actively being dumb. This makes me glad I'm not on Twitter, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No. I just looked to love, which was just like a movie I saw and had some thoughts on. Mm-hmm. They weren't those thoughts. That yeah. sounds so great. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I try not to engage. Yeah. People with bad opinions. Um, <laughs> bad. <laughs> That movie is also so sad. It is. It's really like a tragedy and um, a portrait of like like a sociopath who is, you know, a really sad woman. I yeah. think her pathology comes entirely from society and things yeah. that, you know, she did everything that she's been taught how to do by her father, by her mm-hmm. former husband, and she's tortured by it. Like this, I I, I actually I wrote about it for Film Comment, and in my review I talk about this one scene where she's like lying in bed and she's in this cute negligee like semi-translucent negligee and she's in bed and she's sort of rubbing herself and she hears the voice of her father and her husband talking about how she looks fat and how she's like not living up to all these things and it's like she's sort of like turned on by it but she's also tormented by it yeah like okay this is this is a really brutal moment and it just goes by (laughs) Well, it made me think of, you know, Joan Crawford wrote a book of like etiquette, I guess, or like Mm -hmm. this is what you can do to help yourself be. And she recorded it. And I think it's on YouTube. You can like listen to her reading Mm -hmm. her book about like, this is how I exercise. This is how you should exercise. This is how you should eat. Mm -hmm. And I remember I was at a Thanksgiving and I think it was all guys and they were playing this and laughing as though it was this outdated thing. And I was like, no. This is like the world is still like this, yeah. actually. Like there are still lots of expectations and like we've just put it on a like Gwyneth Paltrow website. It's not yeah. any different. Now. Yeah, like, like instead of a starvation diet, you do a juice cleanse. Yeah, like, exactly. Instead of realizing there are dearth of health options for women, you go into wellness. You get the moon dust shit. And I think that that misunderstanding people thinking like, oh, this is supposed to be back in the day. Like she's doing this kooky thing back in the day. No, this is 2017. This movie was set in 2016. Like this movie was, it's meant to be exactly what it is. Which Anna Biller's also been very clear about. Yeah. She's, she very, I mean, again, the reason why I don't necessarily want to talk about the reception of the film is because she is actually someone who brings attention to a lot of these misunderstandings on Twitter. And also in her interviews where she's just like, these men are trying to tell me, she tries to control the message of her films, which is like, I understand that she wants to have some sort of authorial voice and control over these things. But then also as a critic, it's like, well, you're kind of like straight jacketing your film and limiting its meaning, but also not really because look at all these jackass reactions well i I mean (laughs) i feel when i think about independent cinema today that that my heart the thing i have the hardest time with is how they're sold and the hype associated with them yeah it's really hard to disassociate that from when i want to watch the movie which is why i wait a few years usually to watch films unless there's like a print playing Mm -hmm. because it's just they're not the same they're not equal i always think about at work i always have tcm on Mm -hmm. and often i'll just turn around and there's some you know, some forgotten movie, a W.S. Van Dyke movie that I don't know what it is. And if you were to sit and watch it, it's totally like a solid little movie and a good way to spend 90 minutes, probably. Mm -hmm. And I think most independent films today and most films in general, like, function on that level where it's like, oh, you want to, like, entertain yourself for 90 minutes? Maybe you want to entertain yourself in a serious way. Maybe you want to entertain yourself in a funny way. Mm -hmm. And it's fine. 
and maybe some are better than others but this whole like don't get lost in history you're gonna get lost if you don't watch this independent <laughs> film you're going to be left behind like what no what are you talking about no, i can't I like i can't deal with that this and that's movie... what's so disappointing about yeah. independent cinema is that it is tied to that in order to be sold so that more independent films can be made and i find that i wish there was a more sustainable system that kind of made right. that not what was possible that also has to do with something else that we didn't mention which is the thermometer the rotten tomatoes thermometer where it's like the movie's either good or bad it's not in between it's good or it's bad last week's episode was about bad scenes in good movies and good scenes in bad movies and it's like well you know sometimes something's not entirely all 100 percent life-changing good and will forever you're gonna miss the train of history and look like a total jackass if you don't see this and be able to tweet about it and talk with your idiot friends about it online so whatever Right. On that sour note, we should probably wrap it up. But before we do, it would be great if we could each go around and say a film that we saw recently that we liked. I saw the Saragossa Manuscript, which is Wojciech Haas's utterly amazing black and white fantasia. They did a new restoration. I've only ever seen this movie on like a bad AVI file. So it was really thrilling to see it on the big screen. If you aren't familiar with it, it's set during the Napoleonic Wars, and it's about this guy who discovers this book which involves his grandfather. And then from there, the narrative is very circular. So there's the people reading the story. There's a guy in the story who sometimes has people tell him a story. And inside the story that's being told to him, there might be somebody telling a story. And in that story, somebody might be telling the story. So there are like four or five different levels of narrative going on at any single time. And sometimes you're just like, where is this going? Like, wait, what is happening? And then some of those narrative strands tie themselves up really neatly. And then the biggest one really just doesn't resolve at all. And it's incredible. So uh, if that DCP travels around more, see it. And if not, just watch it on YouTube because David Lynch loved it. I just wanted to laugh. <laughs> so I put on Lost in America, which uh, I guess I guess that's like it was a Criterion disc. I mean, speaking of excess, Albert Brooks managing to do like these comedies that still are surprising at every turn, even though they're very much plugged into a certain zeitgeist or something, or explicitly in this one, this, the plot being a couple that kind of cashes out and goes on the road to, I guess, one-up Easy Rider, basically, do one better. And Brooks just has, goes over the top in very unpredictable ways and just strange one of the strangest opening sequences uh, I, I can remember it's just where it's you're cruising through the house with like the evenness of like a horror movie steady cam making your way up to the bedroom where they are and on the audio is a Larry King show episode with Rex Reed talking about what it's like to be a critic and how he prefers to see movies in the mornings because there's no one around and you have no idea where this is going for you know like just feel like it goes on forever and and finally you get to them in the bed where then the neurosis starts but until then you have no idea why you're listening to this is this supposed to be meta and it's another reason to love it lost in america on independence day like i said i've been watching a lot of republic pictures lately which was a kind of a poverty row studio that made a lot of films in the i think a little bit the 30s but mostly the 40s and 50s and one of the ones that i have fallen in love with is called The Plunderers. And I think of all the Republic pictures I've been watching, the things 
One thing that I've kind of become obsessed with are westerns that were shot in true color. And true color was Republic's kind of own color process. It's only two strip. Mm. And it really, in when it's used in some of these films, especially in the westerns, I feel like the reds and the blues kind of take on this almost mythic kind of strange quality. It just feels like you're not watching a movie maybe of, of the normal world. And this movie is just so beautiful. It... Um, it has all your like necessary kind of Western genre conventions. There's like guy who can't live in the town because he's robbed too many people. And there's a guy who seems to be good, but might be bad. And you're not sure who he is. And then there's the, the lady that sings at the saloon. And it kind of follows course as it needs to be with these, you know, with genre. But what's kind of incredible about it is you have these two male leads, Forrest Tucker and I believe Rod Cameron. And then these two women who are also in the movie. Um, Alona Gray is one of them who just died. I think mm. um, she was 100 years old. And um, I can't remember what the other woman, she's, I think, German of some kind. But what becomes really incredible about the movie are the relationships between these four characters, their interpersonal relationships. And it with a lot of these Republic pictures, actually, what I'm finding is even though they're these B genre movies, the adult relationships, like interpersonal relationships, especially between men and women, are so much more mature than I feel like I've seen in so long and the women are strong and the men kind of are coming to terms with their own um, masculinity in strange ways like they're very strange and I think you know what probably happened was that when you have genre even like with Hugo Haas when you have a certain kind of genre that has a selling point you can put all this interesting stuff underneath that genre so the plunderer is great and it's shot in true color and it's just completely beautiful Um, and I was pretty much blown away by it and it's directed by Joseph Kane who made a lot of Republic pictures. Fair Wind to Java is really great. In any case, yeah. I haven't watched anything in several weeks because I've just been at the festival for like 14 hours a day. You've just been living at work. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but I, so I had to actually think back uh, to like May. Uh, <laughs> but the last time I saw something I really loved, I think I was watching a bunch of Alan Rudolph movies. Um, who is you know, like my favorite. And I rewatched Choose Me, which has always been one of my favorites of his films. Uh, It stars Keith Carradine and Leslie Ann Warren, who I believe are both in his new one, which hopefully will. It's not. Oh, it's not Leslie Ann Warren. She was going to be in it, but instead it's um, Um, the woman, Sandra uh, Sandra Locke. Take that, Clint Eastwood. (laughs) I love Clint Eastwood. (laughs) So it's the two of them and Genevieve Bujold. And it's sort of like a, you know, like a lot of his movies, this sort of like kind of fantasy world, you know, beautiful, hyper reality, uh, sort of all centering around this bar where the characters are in a sort of romantic rondelay with um, Teddy Pendergrass on the soundtrack. Nice. And um, Genevieve Bujold plays this love advice columnist. And I mean, there's literally nothing I love more in films than when someone has a talk radio show. And <laughs> you were talking about this in Seattle last week. Yeah, it's the best. I mean, it's the best. Like, uh, it's always someone with a great voice. And, um, you know, you can hear them talking in like different, you know, scenes that they're not in. It's perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, there's a lot of great scenes with her in she sort of as she develops this relationship with Keith Carradine's character sort of her love advice goes from like cold to being like a little bit more um, like sort of like calculated 
advice to being like a little hotter, much to the amusement of like and confusion of all the men who are the engineers at the radio station. Um, but uh, yeah, the movie's incredible, as are all of his films, and uh, you should definitely check it out. Great. Well, thank you all for coming. This was independent. You've been listening to the Film Comment Podcast, sponsored by Filmstruck. Filmstruck is the streaming service for fans of great cinema and the exclusive streaming home for the Criterion Collection, featuring a bounty of independent and foreign titles, plus original bonus material. And Filmstruck is now available on Roku. Start your free trial today at filmstruck.com. The Film Comet Podcast is produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine, or check out our app, available on Android and iOS, at filmcomment.com slash app. Film Comment at the heart of film culture for over 50 years.